welcome to Rock Paper Swords, the historical action and adventure podcast. My name is Matthew Harfey. My name is Stephen A. Mackay. We're both best-selling historical fiction authors, and together we chat about all things historical and anything that could fall under the banner of action and adventure in books, film, TV, and games. And we also talk about rock music from time to time. If you'd like to help us with our running costs and get exclusive bonus episodes every month and other cool perks, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash podcast. And if you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you can online and share our posts on Facebook, X and so on to help us get the word out there. It really helps the show grow and attract more big-name guests to interview. So today... We had planned to be interviewing someone who shall remain nameless, but um, they didn't turn up. So for whatever reason, um, uh, there was a problem. And um, so we're left with Stephen and me um, here with... Nothing um, to do. With nothing to do, with an an interview planned and just the two of us. So um, we're going to do an episode that we'd planned sometime to do in the future. So bear with us as it's not as well planned as we might have hoped. But we're going to do an episode talking about our research and specifically about research locations and places that appear in our books. Um, talking about you know where we've been, what where we haven't been, where we'd like to go, all of that sort of stuff, and what you get out of um, locations in historical fiction. So that's the premise. So first off, Stephen, where um, was the latest... Or what was the latest or what was the most recent place that you visited um, as a bit of research for one of your books? Uh, it would be Dunotter in eastern Scotland near Aberdeen. Mm, tell it's us a, a bit few, about that. Well, it's a few years ago now. Uh, I think it was for the Northern Throne. It was during lockdown, just before lockdown. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, so it was a while ago, but the books after that, kind of moved uh, down to England, obviously, with Alfred. And it's a bit far for me just to nip on a wee research trip for a day or two, which is exactly what I did at Don Otter. I took the whole family. We all went away. can't remember how many days we went away for, maybe three or four. Stayed in a nice hotel and then visited the fortress one of the days. And it was really nice, you know, to be there with my whole family. And it was just as well I was there with other people because... And this is a weird but true story where my wife and me both had charged our phones up completely for the photos. And when we turned up in this old castle, both the phones died. Basically, the batteries just died. Oh, wow. It's weird. That happens a lot of places that are supposed to be haunted. And I thought, well, that's weird because it, it definitely did happen. Uh, but fortunately, my daughter's iPhone managed to mo- hold most of its battery, so we got some pictures out. But I did think it was really weird, though, that it just seemed to drain the, the batteries in two separate phones and almost did me out of any photographs of the, the trip. How but it weird. was it was really good. Uh, yeah, it was weird. But, yeah, it gave me a good insight into what Dun Otter was like because anybody that's read The Northern Throne will know the Bellicus and Duro get thrown in jail, basically, up there. And they have to find a way to escape. So it really helped me get an idea what the place was like. Because it, it was quite similar. Not exactly the same, obviously, a thousand years ago or whatever. But the the actual location, the rockets the fortress is built on, is obviously the same. And the view you get from it and things like that. So it was quite inspiring. And just, just a good fun trip, apart from the fact it was really, really windy. And uh, my son was quite scared by it because he was really small at the time. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that things like that with the wind, mm-hmm. um, something that you might not have considered when you were writing just based on photos or, or maps or whatever, and then suddenly when you're there, you suddenly think, okay, yeah, I've got to write in that this really strong wind up here on the top of this hill. And- well, I think a lot of these kind of old hill forts or whatever, if you actually stand on them, Tintagel's the same. Yeah. If you stand on it, you nearly get blown off the top half the time. So, yeah, it's, it's good, a good way of getting a bit of realism into it. Well, yeah, I mean, what I, I find often, even if you don't actually travel to the specific place, like you said there, you're standing on another, you know, clifftop, you know, Tintagel mm-hmm. or somewhere else, maybe in Bambra or, or, or any other sort of coastal um, fortress, um, you can certainly 
get similar feelings and then you know, incorporate them into the yeah. books. I think traveling and going places is always useful, even if you mm-hmm. can't get to to where you're going. I find even just walking along my local canal or river, taking the dog for a walk, I end up incorporating lots of those yeah, sort of moments. Things like swans taking off. Mm-hmm. Or absolutely, yeah. But I used to go to work uh, when I was reading meters. I'd go out to more rural places that are completely different, really, to what you're used to and living in a town. You you would see things like a raven and a tree above you, and it would make a noise, and it would be like, "Wow, yeah. you know, I've never heard that near me." So you could then put that, and I did put that into a book, just the noise it made and how big it was. You know, you don't realise just exactly how big a raven is until you see one in flight, and it's just like. Double the size of a carrying crow or more. Yeah, it's yeah, it's great, and um, I'm just thinking about other things like that 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 have happened. I, I with birds, especially when you're mm. just walking around, you see different <clears throat> birds, and I think I might mention to you before. I don't know if it's on the podcast, uh, maybe a while back, but um, one of my, I think it's in the Cross and the Curse, uh, the second book in the Benicia Chronicles. I mentioned several times that Beobrand goes down to the river to the Tweed, and there's a heron. Right. Sitting on like the other side of the of the of the river, and he watches this heron, and you know, I don't know he sees it a few times in the book. Mm. And um, and it was just because every time I was walking the dog along the canal, there was just this bit I kept on seeing the same heron there, and it almost right. became like a friend. You know, it's almost like say hello, how are you doing? <laughs> so the, the heron would just be standing there, have a look at me, and sort of you know feel safe, and I just carried on walking. Um, but I remember my editor sort of said, you know, why have you got this heron? What? <laughs> Is, this is, symbolic? Yeah. is it symbolic? And uh, I said, well, it's just because it's a fucking heron, you know what? Uh, adds a bit of atmosphere. <laughs> it's just, it's real, you know, there really are things mm-hmm. that happen. Well, and there's one beside us. Thing, yeah, not every single thing that appears in a book has to be there for a plot reason, you know. Yeah, it's that's... just nice to add a bit of realism and atmosphere and colour. But um, yeah. there is one beside my house, and I see it quite often. But then I Googled what they eat because I thought, how can a bird as big as that survive? And uh, it turns out they eat baby ducks, so I wish they'd never Googled it. They eat everything. They eat fish, baby <laughs> ducks, frogs, anything that they can get yeah, hold of. Yeah. Horrible. They land in people's fish ponds and just eat all the fish all out right. of the fish ponds, yeah. That's why you see when you see someone's for. fish pond, mm-hmm. you see the nets. It's, it's yeah. for the herons. Uh, there's there's quite a few around me because we've got the canal nearby, and you mm-hmm. see them. When they fly overhead, they're huge. Their wingspans right. are massive, but they sort of fold their necks in so you don't get the sort of snake-like neck. You know, it's sort of And they're quite uh, sinister-looking as well. Yeah, they are. And the way they stand so still, by the, they're like almost like a ghost really standing by the water. And then every I've seen them fish and catching fish in their in the in the mouth or in the beak. It's quite impressive. I've seen them um, kingfishers in the canal as well. Sometimes, not very frequently, but sometimes, and they're, they're really impressive because they're so bright. Uh-huh. Even if you're not looking, the flash of the colour just suddenly catches your eye when uh-huh. they fly, and they fly so fast, and they sort of zip down into the water and back. Incredible. Uh, this is all the kind of stuff you want to put in your books just to add a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Interest. I'm thinking about other places. So the most recent place that I visited was um, Oregon um, last oh, last, yeah, your last cowboy September. Book. Yeah. And um, that was amazing. So that was some really good. So, yeah, so Oregon. Um, and it was it was amazing, sort of hands-on experience, um, doing some riding, um, stayed on a ranch for a couple of a couple of nights, um, and again, I took took my like you said, taking the family. I went with my wife, and we went to visit some friends. So we went with another couple, and so we incorporated it into the holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, getting that experience. So, I mean, I've been riding a few times before, but you know, I'm not a great rider. I haven't ridden for like twenty years or something. So, to actually get to ride a horse in, on the you know in the, the high desert on the hills in yeah. Oregon, sights get the, and the sounds sights and the and sounds smells. And the smells. Yeah, just the whole thing. It's just brilliant. Yeah. And even though I'd already written the book and then I came back and I was still, I was doing the edits and I didn't have to tweak that much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't add that much to it. It just gave me a real feeling that, well, I did manage, I did tweak a few bits, but it sort of gave me a feeling that at least what I'd written was accurate and it felt authentic. And, yeah. and it was, it was just brilliant memories as well. And I got some great photos and little snippets of video and things, but um, that whole experience was great. And we went down, um, we we're in Texas as well. So we went to Fort, worth the old stockyards there they've got historic stockyards and you can see these longhorn cattle getting trailed through the through the street by um by cowboys in you know authentic gear and everything it's see brilliant. that in really scotland cool. all the time really Not cowboys yeah. with farmers well, i don't, I just don't think i don't think you'd see longhorns don't think you get texas longhorns <laughs> mate they're those the horns are ridiculous cows. 
they're like about like a meter and a half long each side. They're, I, I've never I, seen the like. It's ridiculous. Apparently, they're quite <laughs> um, closely related to African buffalo. I don't know. There's a weird sort of hybrid. I think it's the the Spanish brought over some mm. some cattle, which then bred with different things. And, and anyway, they've got these ridiculously massive horns. Just like Everett which, in America, bigger than anywhere yeah, else. It's crazy, but um, yeah, brilliant, um, brilliant experience. And 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 on that note of doing something that sort of cements the feeling that everything is okay, rather than informs the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I often find myself traveling or doing things um, after the event that I've actually written the book, either after it's been published <laughs> or after it's um, the, the draft is written. And I'm sort of on the edits. Um, I did, I did tr- um, do some research on um, sailing, or at least going on the water on a, in a in a boat for Storm of Steel, mm-hmm. which um, part of that takes place down the south coast, and there's a bit and they get shipwrecked down there, and they're traveling on the south coast. So I actually booked. With a friend of mine, we booked. Um, we um, uh, I chartered uh, a small boat. A guy would take people out for fishing trips, or whatever. But I chartered it for like a few hours, and we went out. and I told him what you know what the the idea was. Obviously, this was a motorized boat, but I sort of said the idea is I'm trying to get sort of you know information what it would be like to sail here in the seventh century. And so he mm. he actually was a keen sailor as well, so he knew all about the prevailing winds and currents and everything. All right. And he took us out and he was explaining like what, what would happen at different places. And if there was a prevailing wind that came from this direction, this is where you'd get blown. And so it was really, really useful. And um, and seeing and one of the things that, of course, was useful was seeing the coast from the waterline as well. So from the water, you know, looking mm-hmm. in and actually seeing what you'd see if you're on a, on a ship. So that was brilliant. That was really good. Oh, but that kind of thing, I mean, obviously, we don't know anything about that. So you could still write it and probably get fairly close, but there would always be something that wasn't spot on. Somebody would point it out, leave you a bad review or whatever. So you want to try and avoid that as much as possible. Well, absolutely. I, I mean, uh, yeah. Well, I had a similar thing to you where there was a part of one of the books where they were on a boat or a ship uh, going past Dumbarton Castle. And just by luck, I used to work with a guy, a meter reader, who had a sailing boat. And he knew all about that particular stretch of water. So it was an older, older man. And he was able to tell me exactly what it would be like. Brilliant. So I just put all that in the book and gave him a wee thanks. And, you know, because I wouldn't have had a clue, really. I could describe the landscape and stuff like that. But he knew about, as you say, about how the water actually works and things like that. The currents or whatever that we wouldn't know anything about unless you'd done it yourself. Yeah. It's great. So other places that you've been or that you'd like to go? Uh, well, I went to Dunad uh, and I was with my daughter. Again, the whole family was supposed to go, but my son wasn't well. So it had all been booked. So rather than losing out all the money, me and my daughter went. She was about 11 or 10 at the time. And I get it was another hill fort and it was a really cold day. And it was, but it was a really nice trip, you know, just to be up on this hill fort and you get an idea how hard it would be to attack it or what you could see from the top, you know, round about, the land round about and how marshy is and things like that. Yeah. So I, that was another really interesting trip. But, um, where would you like to go? Well, probably somewhere like Egypt. I would quite like to write a few novels set in ancient Egypt. So I think that would be the, the dream, something like that. Do you like the heat? No. I hate it. I'm <laughs> from Scotland, hate, remember? Probably, well, that's what I was asking. You'd probably hate Egypt then because it's very hot. Uh, exactly. Well, and I hate flying as well. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> well, keen yeah. on flying. So it'll probably never happen. But if I could just like materialise in Egypt, maybe at four o'clock in the afternoon when the sun was starting to go down, December or something, beside a pyramid <laughs> or under the Sphinx, that would be ideal. But I think yeah. that would be quite good. I don't know if those those would sell. So I've not really and we'd have to do a lot of research. I don't know. Look, I've just um I was sent this arc um advance ah, nice. proof. Nice. Um, so just recently by a guy called Thomas Krug, Pharaoh's Gold. And that's coming out um I think it's coming out in March this year. I think it's coming yeah, March twenty twenty four. So yeah, there are a few. Wilbur Smith's done a few which sell well apparently. And 
there's a French guy called Christian Jack. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think you would need to put in an awful lot of effort researching the period. I think so, yeah. Yeah. I don't this know. This one feels it feels sort of quite this Thomas Krug one feels authentic to some extent, but if, if there's a lot of information, it feels like a lot of stuff right. to kind of get your head around to understand the way that people are, are thinking and the religion and all the all of that sort of stuff. It feels you know authentic, but it's difficult, I think, to transport your mind into into that Aye. sort of such a such an alien time and mindset and the way people are are behaving. Seems aye, quite that's, strange. That's, aye, because mm-hmm. well, that's the thing. We we write books about our own area, really, our, our own country, anyway. So we know the landscape. People are probably fairly similar to what they were back then, in terms of religion and stuff like that. I mean, Christianity or whatever. And, you know, whereas ancient Egypt's a completely different kettle of fish, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, anything that's sort of before. Christianity, you start mm-hmm. thinking, well, how you know? Th- so this is a mindset of, you know, populace that don't even have never even heard of Christ and God yeah. and stuff. So it's 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 very difficult to imagine. Well, they worship the Pharaoh, don't they? So yeah, yeah. Well, but and all sorts of different gods. But you know, to, mm-hmm. to be able to put yourself into a mindset that's never been exposed to to all the things that we would take for yeah. granted as yeah. you know, we we're exposed to religion like from you know childhood. But someone that's Aye. been exposed to a different religion from that period, I mean, it's or incredible. even the Romans, because that's one of the yeah. kind of mainstays of our like research. I suppose is you can think, well, did the Romans have you know this type of food at the mm. time? Because if they yeah. did, there's a very good chance they imported it into Britain. Whereas you couldn't think about that with ancient Egypt if you went back, you know, four thousand yeah. years, five thousand, yeah. whatever. Yeah, so I'll probably never get around to writing those books. Or the yeah. or the one about Jesus I'd I'd wanted to write. Are you, are you being serious? Yeah, <laughs> you should uh, do. That would be that would sell well. You'd, you'd make uh, well, a lot of um. You'd probably make a lot of enemies. You'd as make well. a lot of enemies, but you'd sell probably quite a lot. You could probably get them in some in some newspapers and aye, some websites. Aye. But infamy. Yeah, a bit of infamy. <laughs> They've all got it infamy. Aye. I'm thinking. I'm thinking about other things. You're saying that we write um, you know, books based locally. Uh, and that's true for most of my books, I suppose, until more recently. So more recently, I've I've travelled with the I haven't travelled. <laughs> the the, yeah, the characters character have travelled to um to Norway and um, the Hunlaf, The second book goes to Norway and to Orkney. So they sort of got to Orkney, Norway, and then um, later he's gone down to the south of Spain um, to Cadiz and um, and to um, Cordoba. And I've been to the south of Spain before. I lived in Spain for a long time, but I've never been to Norway. Um, but I've not. I, I might have passed through Cadiz. I don't think I've ever spent any time there. So there's a lot of research. But it's interesting with those sort of places. Building. Actually, somebody who lives in the south of Spain wrote back and wrote a review of that uh, of a day of reckoning. I said, "Oh, it's it's amazing how you know it feels really authentic yeah. to the place and everything." And I don't think I've really ever spent any time around the areas I was writing about. But you know, you kind of extrapolate. Well, I I, I extrapolate. My own experience of living in Spain, um, and then things like trips that I made to Morocco um, or to India, and where the culture is different from what we're used to, and it's just, but it's a very hot climate, and you mm. kind of have more extremes of poverty and things, and the smells are different. You know, you mm-hmm. you get a lot of strong smells of of different cooking and 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 rubbish you know the streets are dirty i mean india the, the the streets are often really quite quite horrendous but obviously the people are great and you so you get this sort of strange mixture no it's, it's true you, you, you like, i think you were starting to panic there weren't you? well like, oh, this is going sounds, to sound really racist. it sounds horrible it sounds really horrible to say it but it's true the streets are quite mucky you go yeah, to places uh-huh. and it's a real culture shock when you go in but then you go th- you get one of the things that really shocked me about india and this is kind of like modern india we're talking about but i use kind of thinking of how this is extrapolating back into the past but how the infrastructure of the street is so poor so you basically have like holes in the road and mm-hmm. lots of rubbish and shit and stuff and really horrible open sewers and things at certain places and then you i'd be with work colleagues and they would say like oh we're going to take you to this really nice restaurant and you walk in you get out of the the taxi or the, the tuk-tuk cab thing and you 
And they sort of say, it's just up here. And you think, oh, this street's awful. You know, you'd, in the UK, you'd never have a nice restaurant in a place that the street was all like running with op- like an open sewer. But then you step you step up a step and then into a building and it's air conditioned, all marble. And, and it's lovely. And the food's brilliant. And it's like a five-star restaurant. And you think it's so strange, this sort of juxtaposition of the well-to-do and the wealthy mm-hmm. and then the poverty-stricken people living side by side. And, um, and... And I think if you go back in time to the times that we're writing about and sort of like thinking of like the early Viking age of traveling somewhere like Cadiz or Cordoba, when you've got the the, the Moorish occupation um, and the Islamic occupation of Spain, and you would have this these incredible wealthy people living in palaces with fountains and, and fruit and slaves looking after them and everything sort of, you know, provided for them and beautiful, beautiful buildings and, mm-hmm. you know, wonderful um, and then outside, it would just be awful, you know. Yeah, a dump, a, a real dump, and it and it's so I kind of try to use some of that in the in the writing to give it an authenticity. Yeah, it's it's funny how you can write about a place you've never been, but then you get a review or an email from someone saying this is so authentic. I had the same. I think I mentioned it before in the podcast. There was a section I'd wrote in one of the Robin Hood books, set around a bridge in Yorkshire somewhere. And a guy emailed me and he said that he lives there and it was a uh, spot on, he thought, and he wondered when I'd been. <laughs> and I've never been, I just really used Google Maps, which is absolutely brilliant for things like that. Uh, you can get a good idea of distances and you can even zoom in and get pictures of the, the place that show you how high the hills are or whatever, you know, just give you an idea what how to describe it, what the river's like and what's nearby and stuff like that. Or there's also topographical maps. I sent you one the other day, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which shows you how high hills are in certain parts of the world. And just when you were talking about Norway there, I'd actually zoomed over from England, from Wessex, up to Norway. I'd never realised before how it's basically just a giant mountain. It's a huge, huge mountain race. A huge mountain range is all the way along Norway yeah. and then with loads of like rivers and fjords mm-hmm. and that's it. It's just lakes, fjords and And then you'll maybe get and, one, and to, I think it was Bergen. I'm probably wrong, but I think it was Bergen. Is away at the other side of this huge mountain and then everything else is on the other side. And I thought, how the hell do they get like food and supplies? Do they all just go around in boats? It's yes, yeah, so there's, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of sailing. So yeah, in in Night of Flames, they basically when they mm-hmm. get there, they realise that they have to go upstream looking for someone, and it's just going along waterways, rivers, and through lakes, right. massive lakes, and. Well, you make you understand exactly why the Vikings were so good at sailing. Yeah, you know they were forced and, into, it and why they probably were when they turn up in Wessex and they see this flat compared to there. Homelands. Oh, it's just it's, green, yeah. pleasant fields, you know, compared to what they've got. Some of the research I did for that was actually finding um, that there was there was evidence of um, like archaeological evidence of um, like dugout canoes still being used until like the tenth century. Thing, you know, very very sort of um, you know, what we would consider very uh, primitive yeah. kind of ships and boats um, in the in the fields and around there. But um, they they reckoned, or some of the, the stuff I read, they they thought they could have been used as sleds when they so basically they would use them as boats mm-hmm. but then when they got into a certain point where there was just snow they would just use them as sleds as well so they sort of like it's incredible it was, you know. uh, well they did that with the long ships as well they would just ferry them on land yeah but this was more push them in like rollers. a lot smaller than that these were like for like 10 people or six people or something much smaller but they were right, so they like getting just, supplies from exactly. one place to another uh, or just people to travel from one place to another i uh, just slide it along the ground yeah uh, there was evidence. I think it's because there was like places where they thought ropes could be tied, and so they could at the front where they could sort of like drag them along. But it seemed to sort of make sense. But uh, it's, it's, this is all good. Like you don't need to make a research trip. You can just use things like Google Maps or a topographical map. And... You definitely don't. I mean, I think you get a lot out of it, but I think you definitely don't need to travel. And in fact, one thing to people listening, if you're an aspiring writer or you are a historical fiction writer or any sort of writer. You definitely don't need to travel because um, I remember way back, way back in the mists of time, when I was um, about 17, 18, I was doing my A-level English literature, which um, I failed, I just like to say. (laughs) I don't like to say, but it's true. My claim to fame, failed history, O-level, and then failed 
English <laughs> A-level. But anyway, that shall remain. You'll just we'll brush that under the carpet. But as part of my course, my teacher um, down in Sussex, where I was living at the time, invited us to visit um, a historical novelist um, who was very acclaimed nearby. And we went to meet this lady, and it was Rosemary Sutcliffe. All right. And I met her, actually met Rosemary Sutcliffe, and she died about a year later. She was very elderly, mm-hmm. and she was wheelchair-bound, and very, I mean, she she had a severe, um, she was severely disabled, and she had been since she was like a teenager. Right. And I read about her late. I'd forgotten about this, and I, it was only when I started writing that I sort of remembered. I'd read some of her stuff, but I'd kind of forgotten that I'd met was her. Was it Eagle of the and, Ninth? Stuff? Yeah, yeah, Eagle yeah. of the Ninth, and she she's wrote stuff about Beowulf and mm-hmm. King Arthur. Um, sword, sword, sword at sunset is the Arthurian one. She's done loads. Basically, everything that we sort of write about, she's written about mm-hmm. Vikings and the mm-hmm. Shield Bearer. I think is one of hers. Anyway, brilliant, really great um, writer. And as I say, she travelled when she was um, young. Her dad, I think, was a um, a diplomat or something or so, something like that. I can't remember. But I think she travelled and lived maybe in Malta or somewhere in in Europe. Um, different climate but then she got um, I can't remember what it was that she got wrong with her but anyway she she became severely disabled and couldn't travel um, really at all and she was wheelchair bound all the rest of her life but without being able to physically do any of these things she wrote about people from ancient world from the ancient world all over the place battles and fighting and you know all sorts and she was incredible so but she never even had Google and she didn't have Google she only had libraries and books you know so if anybody's thinking, oh, I can't write about you know ancient Rome because I can't travel to Rome, mm-hmm. although it would be fantastic to travel to Rome, and you know I would never say don't go to somewhere yeah. that you're going to write about, you can get around it by reading and researching and using your imagination, and as we say, extrapolating things from your day to day life and using common sense and a bit of an imagination uh, yeah. to put yourself well, into a place. I've been to Rome. Uh, it doesn't really appear in any of my books, but. You know, you you can get similar ideas just by going to like a town or a city near you on a really hot day. Yeah. You know, because you get a similar idea because Rome is obviously a modern city now. So you've if you've got the Colosseum and stuff like that, which is incredible. But, you know, you can get a good idea what that's like just from a video or something. In fact, my son got a VR headset for Christmas. All right. And I tried it. I can't really go. It makes me feel sick if I try it. But there was one video I looked up and it was a Coliseum in VR. It's exactly like being there. It's brilliant until you start to feel sick. Uh, <laughs> Maybe you'd be there. <laughs> uh, no, I've, I have been there. But, I mean, oh, it's, yeah, I, I I know, it's, well. it's just like yeah. being there. So, you know, there's other ways you can get to places nowadays without moving from your yeah, own absolutely. living. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, YouTube I mean, videos or whatever. So people that are unable to, for whatever reason, mm. travel, you know, during COVID, of course, well, none of us could usually travel, money. But, usually, but, but I was going to say it could time. be it could be money, time, but yeah. also people that are you know severely disabled and mm. are, are unable to um, you know to, to be able to, to travel. So yeah, definitely it, the world is a much easier place than it was um, before in terms of being able to sort of travel with your yep. mind. You know, actually go places and see things on YouTube videos and stuff. Actually, where I'm writing at the moment. Um, they're actually in Rome at the moment in the seventh century, Beobrand and his cohort of friends. Um, and yes, yeah, I have been to Rome before and I've been to Italy a few times, but yeah, I mean, most of it is coming just from my imagination and looking at maps and trying to sort of think what it would have been like in the seventh century, because of course there's no maps of Rome in the seventh century. We've got sort of we got reconstructions of what Rome was like in its heyday in the third or fourth century at the end of, of the Roman Empire. And we have maps from like the Middle Ages when there's like nothing left, basically. And there was a huge decline before the period that I'm writing about in the, the seventh century. But by that point, it had gone from a million people in Rome in its heyday to 50,000. So it's such a decline and so incredibly different. So it's interesting to write about because I think it's a period people don't often write about. So I've mm-hmm. I've not read any books set in that period. But, you know, when they arrive, they find that, you know, there, there are these huge places like the Colosseum, which is still there, obviously, because it's, it's there now, right? Um, and so parts of the Forum and different, like the Pantheon and things um, are there. But, of course, other bits of the city are just derelict. Um, aqueducts got broken by the Visigoths and different raids, and, and so there'll be the... places there then that are gone now. Yes, so exactly. You, you yeah, can kind of yeah. make stuff up. 
Exactly. Yes. So I've got people living in villas that you know, mm-hmm. maybe now are not not there, but obviously at the time, the lots of the old city was still yeah, left. There, but it was abandoned, and so the bits of the city abandoned. Uh, I wonder if those cats were still there. Lots of cats. Yeah, do you know the bit I'm talking about on the forum? I'm sure it is. Well, there's there's loads of cats all over the place. I think when you go to warmer climes, there's often loads of no, stray one, cats and stray. There was one dogs. bit in particular. God, I can't remember what it is. A really famous bit. It could be the forum. I think it is a forum. And, uh, and there's people feed the cats. It's like an old lady that go out and feed them. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, you'd no see a cat at all, and then you'd walk into this place, and there was like 40 cats just wandering around. It was weird. That was their home. There was no fence or anything to keep them in. They just all yeah, seemed yeah. to stay there. Oh, it's but, an interesting thing, um, like on the Farne Islands, moving back to Britain, mm-hmm. but the Farne Islands where St Cuthbert set up his little chapel and... They they get mentioned in the Benicia Chronicles a few times. I don't think they've ever ever actually gone there. But I visited the Farne Islands when I was living up in Northumberland years ago, and I think it's on the inner Farne or outer Farne. One of the one of them anyway. They there's just loads and loads of rabbits because it's a tiny little yeah, island. Yeah. But the monks took over rabbits when they went mm-hmm. over, and of course there's no there's no With predators the <laughs> on the on the island. So I mean it's only the island's like about a quarter of a mile long or something. It's tiny. Uh, but it's absolutely just teeming with rabbits. Well this that reminds me of Father Ted. Right. You know seen that a, episode? No, no, no. Oh okay, well go and watch you it. To, you have to tell us now. It's just that father they get a rabbit and all of a sudden the house is filled with uh, them. Okay. And that one at the, the bishops coming for a visit and there's rabbits everywhere and they just Maybe keep appearing. This is probably part of <laughs> I think Father Ted is part of my cultural wilderness. Um, oh, the, um, of the 90s, right. which mm-hmm. we talked about the other day. I don't think we were mm-hmm. on, on like, I don't think we were actually recording the podcast, but I was living in Spain from 88 through to 2001. So everything that took place in the 90s um, that was very British centric, I just missed it. Yeah. So I know Father Ted and I've seen a couple of episodes, but I've never, I didn't You don't know the lore. I don't know the lore. Exactly. You need to watch it. Brilliant. So is there anywhere? that you have visited that you've then put into the book or into a book specifically because it's sort of yeah, chimed the, with you in some way? Yeah. We went to, oh, it must have been York, just for a family holiday a few years ago. And I think, I don't even think I'd started writing the Robin Hood books. I think that was part of the research just to get me into the right mindset. And we visited, I don't remember where it was. It was like a small castle very small um and i remember walking around and they had like a plaque up telling you stuff and they had like the the garderobe uh where somebody had escaped from jail there by climbing down the toilet basically and going yeah, through yeah, all the shit yeah. and uh i thought oh, we've all done is, it this is excellent guy uh so i thought you know i'm not making this up somebody actually did this a real historical figure did this so this is getting in my Robin Hood book. So it did, I think it was the second book, uh, Will Scarlet goes in and he has to climb up through all this shit and him and little John are there and they're having a laugh about getting covered and all this and how smelly it is and stuff. But then I get a review from somebody saying, oh my God, he used this old trope that everybody uses where they s- escape through the toilet. And I thought, well, I never knew really it was happened. an old trope. Exactly, it's something that really happened. So I you know, I thought I was justified in using it, but you always get somebody complaining that about something, don't you? Can't win. Well, that's it. But there's some. There's a reason why some of these things are tropes. It's because they happen. It really happened. Also because they're they're a good storytelling device. Exactly, it was good yeah. fodder for a bit of a laugh while also being serious. You know, because it's a very serious part of the book where he's he's feeling really really depressed about all the stuff that's happening, and then you get this kind of lighter moment mm. where Will Scarlet's falling and shit. Well, yeah, I think in this um, in this latest book that I'm writing now, they travel down through. Um, they're they're basically travelling from Britain on a pilgrimage down to Rome, um, and I noticed that the pilgrim route goes through Lucca, which is a town in north north. Uh, it's in the um, in Tuscany, right? Um, and I was there a couple of years ago on holiday, so I had to include a little stop in Lucca because you know you think, well, I've been there, so. So it's great. And then, yeah, it's only like, I don't know, a couple of paragraphs in a, in a mm. chapter when they're there. But, you know, you you know 
that the feel of the place, even though it's obviously changed, still like we were saying before, the Roman ruins would, would still be there, and the, mm -hmm. the people still be living there, and it's quite incredible, really. Look at the history of these places, and the main square is like the amphitheater, right. where the amphitheater was, which is obviously the same back then. Yeah, exactly. So I yeah. have them basically. So we we sat when we went there a couple of years ago. We sat in the middle of the arena, right. which is like the square, having you know having food, you know, in a restaurant there. And so I've got them staying in like a a tavern in whatever that's basically there in the mm. in the arena. So I thought yeah, well, that's perfect because yeah. again, it gives you an idea that the kind of things you would hear. Yeah, you know, because they have different buds to what we yes, have. Yeah, you know, I have yeah. different buds in my garden to what you've got down in England. You know, things like that. You don't really think too much about until you start writing historical fiction and you realise you need to get these things bang on. Yeah, the birds thing is interesting, actually, because that's one thing that in we mentioned that before already, but the um, when I was in Oregon, there was loads of little... Mm -hmm. I can't remember what they were now because I've actually put it in the book, but I think they were like Californian partridges or something. I can't remember. Oh, right, we right. asked what, what they were. I took photos, you know, and we asked, found out what they were, but I've, I've included them because they're all over the place. You know, they're basically... Mm -hmm. You'd be like sort of walking around and there's like, you know, dozens of these little birds pecking about and sort of flying off and you'd, you'd never seen them before, you know. So that's it's an, an interesting little detail. You think, well, I know they're there because they're, you know, you see them. Check that they're, you have to check that they were there 150 years ago. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Not that they've been introduced by the settlers and stuff because exactly. that was interesting because we were talking to one of the the, the girl that was um, guiding us on the on horseback about the, the the trees, there were sort of trees dotted around on the hillsides and stuff. And she actually said, "Oh, those those aren't native." And there's a whole plan to get rid of them. There was these different oh, juniper right. bushes, and they've been they've been planted by the by the, um, the settlers, Spanish, or something, yeah. yeah. And um, and they take up loads and loads of water, so right. they sort of suck up loads and loads of water. So the the rest of the area around them <laughs> dries out. So they, you know, really makes a difference to the landscape very quickly. That sounds like June. Yeah. Oh, well, they have to think so much about the water that's getting used because it's so it's precious. Just, it's a thing that you don't think about. But mm -hmm. you, think, you plant a tree that's used to drinking lots of water in an area that's quite arid, and obviously it sucks up thousands of litres a year of water that otherwise would go to other animals know, or whatever. And, yeah, and other plants. So they say basically uh, all the plants around, you know, cut these, these, I think yeah, they're drowning. Uh, they all die. They're all uh, dry. And then these juniper bushes are fine because they're quite hardy. Um, but. <laughs> Yeah, they sort of everything else is sort of barren around them. So they've got this whole campaign to sort of dig them up, I think, and get rid of them and plant mm -hmm. know, native native trees. Um, so interesting. Been to anywhere else? Any other interesting places that are featured in the books? No, not that I remember. Well, when you come down, when you come down here for the Historical Novel Society, oh well, um, that's what we're talking finished. about before. Yeah, exactly. you'll have finished um, your your Alfred books by then, but you never know. Maybe you'll write some more things set in Wessex. But I could take you to some sites, um, maybe on the way down uh -huh. the day the day before or something. Um, I was thinking maybe we could um, visit Glastonbury Tor. That's pretty impressive. Oh, hi, I would quite that's, like. Um, I think I've been near there, but I never went to. I mean, of course, because that's kind of on the way. I think we could sort of right. go to Glastonbury and then drive down towards Devon. Um, and it's only it's Glastonbury is about forty five minutes, fifty minutes right. from from me. So, and that's that's a nice little stop, mm -hmm. and you can walk up the tour and get great views because it's all flat around there. Oh, that's There's definitely the other... kind of thing that you would want to put in a book. Yeah, well, of course, I'm listening to um, the uh, King Arthur, the um, Bernard Cornwell's great yeah. King Arthur books at the moment. I'm listening, re-listening, well, listening for the first time to the audiobook. I've read the books before. Oh, they're very good. Um, Jonathan but, Yes, Is yes. It, I'm, yeah. The only thing I'm a bit annoyed about is that. Um, oh, I'll, I'll just say first though that it's it, obviously they mention the tour. They keep on talking about the tour where Merlin lives and everything. Mm. And that's Glastonbury. So, um, so yeah, get that idea. Obviously, the levels around which are flooded a lot in the in the time of the sort of early medieval period. But um, but yeah, Jonathan Keeble, he's great. He does a great job at, at reading um, and narrating. He puts on the voices and uh, lots of emotion and everything. Mm. But he mispronounces so many things. It really gets <laughs> on my tits. He um, like loads of the names. He just mispronounces them completely. Names of places and names of people. He obviously did no research about what the pronunciation is of like old English words, like Brit Britonic words or Saxon mm. words or anything like that, which really it does get on get get on my wick. 
Well, you live there, so you would know. No, no, but it's not. It's not that. No, no. These are no. These are not names that that, that everybody would know. These are names that are specific to the time. Um, And he pronounces like Welsh names and things that he just pronounces them all just wrong. So he he obviously done no research about how to pronounce them. Where it's interesting because Barnaby Edwards, who does all my books, he does loads of research and he contacts special you know special um linguists to ask them a pronunciation he contacts me and says you know what do you do you have a preference for the pronunciation of this specific name because things are pronounced differently and so but obviously jonathan keeble didn't did none of that so he just pronounces words as he thinks so like kina glass he pronounces it it should be like kuna glass so the y is not pronounced like a like an, an e but he pronounces it like that and stuff like that and and he does it all of the names and like all of the, and he, <laughs> he he pronounces all of like the Anglo-Saxon, all the Saxon names are all wrong. He he calls the Saxons Sace instead of Sice, and it's just I don't. It's just it's just annoys me because these there's terms that they well, have pronunciations. You know, I've listened to all those audiobooks and I and I've even noticed. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. But yeah, it, when when you know you know, and it just mm-hmm. it's just annoying because it just sounds like. He's a, obviously a good actor and a good reader who's just not bothered to. to <laughs> to investigate how these things are pronounced, just decided oh, I'm just going to pronounce the way I think they're pronounced, and that's it. Just oh, go for it. Blaming that case is it the producer? Maybe should have given I them a list. I think so. I think it's the product. But I've, I've spoken actually to Barnaby about about this, and he said that lots of writers don't do as much prep work as he does. Because he narrators. Uh, the, yeah, sorry, what did I say? Writers. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the narrators. Yeah, they, they, they don't do. Um, they don't do as much as much mm-hmm. prep. So Barnaby says he, he spends, I think, a day or two or even three, I think, reading the book first and marking it up and checking. We've got I send him a list of all the the character names and the and he he checks all the pronunciation. Um and then and then so he says so he marks the whole thing up first and then he does the actual narration. So but he said lots of people don't. He said they just take the book and, and obviously because it must it, it, yeah, it must impact mm-hmm. their their Profits, I guess. I mean, you know, it must be the difference of being able to record, you know, ten books a month as opposed to five or whatever. You know, so Aye. must make a difference. But anyway, but yes, Jonathan Keeble. I don't want to diss him too much because he is really good. The the he does the David Gamble books as well. Yeah, and he's done some of those. They're really good. He did some Ian Ross books as well. I heard the first Ian Ross book was Jonathan mm-hmm. Keeble, and I think yep. more recently, I think he's done um, MJ Porter's. I saw Wait. his name against some, or maybe it was Sean Barrett. Against hers, who he's done some of the other um, David Gemmell books. So mm. yeah, great. He's he's a great narrator. Just just, just a pet peeve, a pet peeve of the pronunciation of some of the names. That's all. Even Dervil, <laughs> I think. Even Der- I think. I think the reason it annoys me more is because I think there's actually a pronunciation guide in there the, is, in there the is book. A, I remember it's and distinctly I think that's tells you why Dervil. it annoys uh-huh. me because it says Dervil yeah. is pronounced Dervil, and he says Dervil Kadan, and he tells you how to pronounce it all, and he and he doesn't. Yeah, so it's just like he hasn't read that bit. So maybe he didn't get that given to him, you know, but, but yeah, it's sort of just uh anyway. So <laughs> well, the, that is a, a a question for another day though, how you translate or how you figure out how to pronounce these old words if you don't know. That's well, true. Yeah, so, and some of it well, is guesswork. We'll probably do a bonus episode on that one day. Yeah, some of it's guesswork, I think, but um mm. Yeah, so I think in in summary, I think I would say it's fantastic to travel widely, as widely as you can, and go as many places as you can because it's all great fodder for mm. um, the novelist and for your creative juices. Yeah, especially just... if it's somewhere slightly ex- more exotic than your usual, like where you live. Yeah, but even if it's just where you live, mm-hmm. keep your eyes and ears and nose you know, open and get you know get some of those sort of day to day incidents mm-hmm. and extrapolate them from wherever you are and put them into the book because life yeah. goes on and people are people and yeah sights sounds and smells and yeah that kind of thing that you slightly out with your usual experience yep so travel is great but not necessary to write well um, but you know, if you're writing best of luck and yeah. um, let us know in the comments if you've travelled anywhere, anywhere fantastically interesting. Or and, if you've um, been to anywhere that's in our books. That, uh, oh, yeah. Whether we got it right or terribly wrong. Yes, absolutely. And um, 
And if there's any any amazing places that we, you think we should include in our books in the future, because mm -hmm. they're linked to, to to the characters or the locations that we talk about that we haven't mentioned, because there's quite a few places that, that I haven't mentioned in today's conversation um, that actually are you know little places that I know from when I was growing up in Northumberland that I just included because I used to live in um, in Norham, which is Ubbenford in the books. And I lived there right. for a few years as a kid. And so I would travel, you know, around there, running around doing kiddie stuff. But you know, I've tried to include some of those locations in the book. So any little snippets of, of ideas and locations that we could include into some of Bayer Brand's travels or some of your druid mm -hmm. traveling around Britain, um, let us know. Aye, definitely. And it does help if you write about the place where you actually live, like I've done with the druid books. You, know, you can yeah. just drive down and well, I used to work at the Barton Castle, so <laughs> nobody can really tell me I'm wrong because I know for a fact that I've 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 spent a lot of time in these local places. Yeah, I have to say the Wolf of Wessex was the easiest when it came to that because I based that in places that I could literally travel to in, in half an hour in the car. Um and so walk the walk those, you know, very hills with my dog and you know, so it was you know really, really nice to sort of travel around and well, that, because well, there's definitely the... there's pitfalls as well. I remember it was one place I wrote about in one of the Robin Hood books, and I said it was uh, flat near there. And uh, I think it must have been one of the beta readers said to me, "You do realise this is where the film Last of the Summer Wine." And the image he gave me was uh, one of the guys in Last of the Summer Wine going down a hill in a bath. This is a kind of last of the summer wines a daft comedy show in Britain for older people, and that was Compo. I think the guy was called with the wellies and the daft beanie hat. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he was flying down the hill in this bath because I think it was Holmfirth. It's actually incredibly hilly. Just to this one kind of bit, and in the book I'd said it was really low, and it just lucky that a beta reader caught it, and I was able to fix it before it was published. Well, that's an interesting. Point. I mean, I know we were sort of, you know, I could tell we're we're sort of winding up now. Suddenly, we've had some extra ideas, but that's uh, that's because we hadn't prepared for this exactly. one. Back I to know, our it's original. Ideal, but... It's, but anyway, still some interesting stuff. But no, I was just thinking. Um, the other thing, of course, is that it's it's easy because we're writing about stuff that happens so far in the past. When we're writing about early medieval, for example, um, the landscape can change quite drastically, and it's easy to sort of think, oh, it's always been the same. You know, so if mm. you go along a bit of coast along the east coast of Britain, you might think, well, this has always been like that. And then yeah. you actually investigate and perhaps the sea is two miles further you know, inland than it was then, you know, or, or whatever, or the river's changed completely or a river's been dried or fens have been yeah. dredged. The, the Somerset levels aren't underwater move. anymore. Yeah. So is that, yeah. That, wasn't, that wasn't even there at the time, was it? That was That's a, right. All of that area that is sea. totally different. All the fens and yeah. everything around there. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And like I was talking about Somerset before and about how un that was all flooded. And mm. every every winter here, it's incredible because I live in Wiltshire near just near the Somerset border. And every winter, um, there's huge amounts of floods where rivers break their banks. And you can just tell that, you know, that's what it would have been like all the time mm -hmm. you know, for a long time um, throughout history. Um, where everything would just be under a, a few feet of water, really. Um, lots of Britain. So, yes, another thing to be careful of. And another thing you, you need to kind of try to find the information if you can, but it's not always easy. And in the end, you sometimes just have to take the plunge and just put in your historical note, I've done my best. I did that with the um, the Night of Flames um, Norway stuff because I got them going through all these waterways mm -hmm. And, the, and I realised that in the 20th century, there's been huge amounts of hydroelectric um, stuff, dams built. Loads of rivers have been um, dammed and, and there's new massive lakes. So you look at it and you think, oh, there's this huge lake here. And then you have to do some research to work out, was that a lake at the time? And half the time, no, it wasn't. You know, So you have to kind of right. well use as much information as you can. But in the end, it's yeah, very difficult can... to find maps that are accurate from before, like 100 years ago. Yeah. So, well, I mean, you could try, like, if you're on Facebook, you maybe know somebody from these areas that you can, you can ask. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I mean, how many people mm -hmm. are actually going to know whether a lake was there 1400 years before or 1200 years before or something? I yeah. maybe don't know that, but like, I messaged yeah. you and I said, 
Matthews uh, Wessex, Hilli- uh, sorry, is Mercia hillier than Wessex? We, and I and I said the same you as you. Weren't really I, said, sure. I said the same as you. I said I think it probably is. Yeah, we, and that's just based on driving really sure. through it, and you know, and, and but it feels like it probably should be. I think exactly. The I think further north it is, but yeah, I mean, yeah. but that's a good, it's a good point. We know we know all know people that live in these kind of areas. So if it's something kind of general like that, yeah, are they? So you research yeah. it. It's easy yeah. enough. Absolutely. So. You think that's it? Yeah, that's it for today's unscripted, unplanned episode. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Thanks for bearing with us. I hope you found something of interest and um, hope you've enjoyed it. And um, hopefully we will get the guest on who failed completely to remember to turn up. Um, so don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. And a special thanks to our very first Patreon producer, Luke Gauchi. I'm going to pronounce it Gauchi today, and we'll see whether that's right, because I keep getting the pronunciation wrong each time, so we'll yeah, find out. Have Jonathan Keeble? <laughs> well, he won't, he won't become a producer, I'm sure, <laughs> after my comments today. Let us know if you have any questions or things you'd like us to cover in future episodes. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast and x at rock underscore swords. You can find out more about our books on matthewharfey.com and stephenamackay.com. The theme music is written and performed and copyrighted by us. Until next time, a rock, paper, saws. It's goodbye from me, Matthew Harfey. That's goodbye from me, Stephen A. Mackay. And remember, whatever action and adventure you have going on in your life, be kind. Stay safe. And happy reading. erotic strangulation that'll be that'll be fun too i can't wait i can't wait